Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hawaii's governor says he expects loss of life from his state's apocalyptic wildfires. The lead starts right now. State of dire emergency, unprecedented wildfires prompting evacuations in parts of Hawaii. Some locals opting to jump in the water as rescuers race to save lives. We're standing by to hear from Hawaiian officials any minute. And escalating the 2020 election case in Fulton County, Georgia. Sources telling CNN more than a dozen people could soon be indicted. As early as next week, will Donald Trump be among them? Plus... Food prices, gas prices, inflation, all on the rise. Senator Elizabeth Warren will be here. We'll talk to her about what President Biden is doing right and doing wrong on the economy. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start this hour with the breaking news. Violent and explosive wildfires in Hawaii, fueled by strong winds from a hurricane 800 miles away. It is a situation so sudden and so catastrophic. On Maui, local officials say at least a dozen people ran into the ocean to try to escape the flames, and they went out so far, they then had to be rescued. Hawaii's governor says hundreds of families have been displaced, and quote, some loss of life is expected, unquote. Cell towers and 911 are out of service on Maui's hard-hit west side, compounding the difficulty for rescuers. Right now, we're awaiting a news conference expected any moment from officials in Hawaii, and we'll bring you that right when it starts. But first, CNN's Derek Van Dam takes a look at where this erratic disaster may be headed next. Hellish scenes of wildfires engulfing normally picturesque Maui. Powerful winds associated with Hurricane Dora helping fuel the flames. The fact that we have wildfires... um Uh, on multiple areas um, as a result of uh, indirectly from a hurricane is unprecedented. Lieutenant Governor Sylvia Luke issued an emergency proclamation Tuesday. Governor Josh Green had been out of state but is returning tonight. It has um, turned very serious and very dire. She said the hospitals on the island are overwhelmed with burn patients and people suffering from smoke inhalation. Also, 911 cell and phone services are down, complicating evacuations. The Maui County has not been able to communicate um, with residents on the uh, the west side, Lahaina side. So we're dealing with, uh, because we're an island state, in addition to dealing with disaster, we're dealing with uh, major transportation issues as well. Right now, emergency response teams are working together to gain control of the island. The disaster wiping out power to around 14,000 homes and businesses. People sleeping everywhere. Also stopping air travel at the Kahului Airport, forcing several travelers to sleep on airport grounds. And according to Maui County officials, the U.S. Coast Guard has rescued at least 12 people from waters off Lahaina, saying they jumped into the ocean to escape the smoke and fire conditions. Some Lahaina residents comparing the scene to an apocalypse. People basically running for their lives. Many now saying 
they're homeless. Our house is gone. Everything that we had ever known was gone. Everyone I know in Lahaina, their homes have been burned down. Similarly to what Southern California residents experienced with Santa Ana winds, the winds that rushed over Maui and the mountainous terrain there went through some very basic thermodynamic processes. As they went up and over the mountains, they dry out, they warm up, and they speed up. And as long as that uh, hurricane continues to move uh, move away from Hawaii, it will impact this area with wind. Derek Van Dam, thanks. Let's go to Hawaii right now where officials are giving an update. As we uh, monitor the situation and we have um, spoken to both mayors several times throughout the night and we have been working with um, not just the federal delegation, many of the state partners, many of the uh, the industry leaders, um, thanks to Adjutant General Hara and Haima. Um, the, you know, the point is um, a lot of residents in the state of Hawaii, when we are preparing for the hurricane, we we expect rain. Um, sometimes we expect floods. We never anticipated uh, in this state that a hurricane, which did not make impact on our islands, will cause this type of wildfires. Wildfires that wiped out communities, wildfires that wiped out businesses, wildfires that destroyed homes. We are learning and gathering information more and more, and we just feel so um, sad and um, just great sympathy and prayers out to the people of Maui, the individuals who are impacted. And um, Josh and I want to send our um, deepest gratitude to the mayors, um, both on Maui and the Big Island for working so hard. His, they're both their teams, but at the same time, all of us are working very closely to ensure that the health and safety of our communities and members on all the islands are protected. Um, today, we signed another emergency proclamation, which will discourage tourists from going to Maui, even as of this morning, um, Planes were landing on Maui with tourists. Um, This is not a safe place to be. On certain parts of Maui, we have shelters that are overrun. We have resources that are being taxed. Um, We are doing whatever we can, and uh, the state is providing whatever support that we can to give support to both Maui and to the Big Island. Uh, You know... um, uh, Governor Green is cutting his um, trip short. He is en route. He will be back midnight. Um, he is cutting his trip by a week, and that tells you the magnitude of how grave we think the situation is, and we have been working all night to make sure that um, the situation is contained. Uh, we are thankful to the mayors, and we uh, definitely, We are grateful to the federal delegation. We have already reached out to um, FEMA, and they have generously provided support. And so we are just thankful for many support. But at the same time, you know, please um, reach out to um, people. You know, I mean, we anytime there's a disaster, anytime there's um, uh, things like this that happen to our community that shake our community. It's the community and it's our families and it's our people. It's our ohana that help each other. And this is a time we need help. We need to be 
stand together. We need to be brave for each other. But at the same time, you know, I mean, um, it's just with sadness and um, uh, just so we are just struck by the devastation felt in Maui. Mahalo, Acting Governor Luke. At this time, I'd like to bring up Major General Ken Hara, Adjutant General of the Hawaii State Department of Defense. Aloha and good morning. Uh, so Lieutenant Governor Green appointed me as the overall incident commander for the state for this incident. Um, however, I just wanted to stress that um, in accordance with Hawaii Vice Statute 127 Alpha, that we are in support of the counties and they are the lead. Um, it was very difficult because of the conditions last night, the high winds and the fire. Um, we really don't have all of the details and exactly how many structures are damaged, um, but we do know, you know, power's out, they're having problems with water. But I'll let the county share the, the details of, of each, um, each of the effects by, by island. Um, we did get support from the active duty military providing uh, helicopters to Hawaii County. And then I sent uh, two helicopters over to Maui to, to do uh, water bucket fire suppression missions and an additional guardsman to assist with search and rescue, traffic control, and security. And then we're standing by, as, as the lieutenant governor mentioned, um, close coordination with FEMA for additional federal resources. Uh, based on the uh, request for our visitors um, to leave Maui, we worked with the um, Department of Business, Economic Development, Tourism, and the Hawaii Convention Center. So if there's anyone that's traveling off of Maui to Oahu and do not have, was not able to get a hotel room, the, they can get lodging at the uh, convention center. Uh, we, we don't have any transportation laid out yet. We're working that logistics now, but if you can find your way to the convention center, uh, we can provide you shelter there until you get follow-on um, transportation out of the state of Hawaii. If you need information um, on the website, so ready.hawaii.gov, and that's Hawaii spelled out, ready.hawaii.gov is the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency's website that you can get all of the current information, and that'll be the, the core site for, for you to get the accurate information. And then the phone number is 808-733-4300. And again, 808-733-4300. But we are in coordination working with the, our airline partners to try to get more flights um, with the hotel so they can get rooms so the um, if any of the, the uh, visitors would like to stay in a hotel as opposed to the convention center, and then as a last resort, the convention center. Thank you. Mahalo, Major General Hara. At this time, I'd like to turn your attention to the screen electronically. Um, and joining us today is Mayor Richard Bisson with Maui County. Aloha. I would like to first thank uh, the Lieutenant Governor as well as the Attorney, uh, the Adjutant General for arranging this joint press conference. We know there's lots of interest in what's going on uh, in our county and I'd like to update everyone. Um, as a result of three fires that have occurred that are continuing uh, here on our island, uh, we have had um, 13 evacuations from different uh, neighborhoods and, and uh, towns. We've had 16 road closures. We've opened five shelters. 
uh, and we've, uh, as a result of that, um, our west side of our island, uh, Lahaina area was uh, was cut off. Uh, only one road was able to be um, traveled in and out. Uh, power was out uh, to 2,628 of uh, customers. Uh, there was no power at our hotels uh, or even at the shelters that we opened out on that side. Uh, I'm sad to report that just before coming on this, uh, it was confirmed we've had six fatalities that we were able to confirm. Um, and we are still in a search and rescue uh, mode. And so uh, I don't know what will happen to that number. Uh, we've had many dwellings, businesses, structures uh, that have, uh, have been burnt, uh, many of them to the ground, uh, mostly in our Lahaina. Uh, neighborhoods in our Lahaina area. Uh, we've had uh, also, I should have added multiple school closures. Uh, we are grateful to the DOE for allowing us to use their facilities here in Maui County to uh, be able to house folks. We have over 2,100 people in shelters uh, within those shelters I mentioned to you, and uh, several that are uh, unaccounted for in the sense that they are in their cars and did not come into the actual shelter. Um, we are grateful, again, for the assets that have been uh, sent over to us by the state, our federal partners, our county partners and allies. We are grateful for the outpouring of assistance. Uh, at this time, uh, we are battling, continuing the battle of fire. We now have helicopters that were unable to get up in the air yesterday uh, that are now uh, using water drops to, uh, to help suppress the fire. Uh, that's the latest information from Maui County. I uh, thank you again uh, for allowing us to address you. Mahalo, Mayor Bisson. At this time, I'd like to turn your attention virtually to Mayor Mitch Roth from Hawaii County. Aloha. I would like to thank the Lieutenant Governor, uh, as well as the Adjutant General, for having this press conference day. Um, Hawaii Island, we had. Uh, three to five fires, depending on how you count them. Um, right now, we are still battling um, three of those. Uh, Lalamilo fire is pretty much well contained. Um, yeah, Kunipule fire, um, we have some containment on there. However, um, we do still have firefighters out there. We're still um, kind of hesitant to say we have it completely under control. Um, Ekuni Highway is still closed from mile marker 6 to 17. As far as the Mauna Kea Resort area fire, that is still being actively uh, fought right now. I have just got word before going on that they have just opened the Queen Kahalumano Highway that was closed. So um, we're still going uh, in, in that area. Um, still caution people, we're still under a red flag warning. And we see that with winds coming up, it's very possible for uh, planes to get sent out uh, from places where we, we think we almost have things put out. But right now, uh, firefighters are out there working. Um, we have our shelters open, Piso Gym, as well as Waimea Community Center. I believe at this time, those uh, shelters are, are empty. Um, we appreciate all the support that people have given to us, we especially appreciate um, the teamwork that we've received from you know, our firefighters, uh, federal partners, our, our military, PTA, uh, National Guard, 
Um, a lot of our private contractors who have been out there, uh, state uh, DLNR for the DOFA, and others who have just reached out to help. We're so thankful for that. But at this time, you know, our, our thoughts and our prayers are uh, with Maui, and you know, um, we're not out of the woods yet. But I think uh, the situation in Maui right now should take precedence over us, and uh, we're happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Mahalo, Mayor Roth. At this time, I'd like to bring up Director Ed Sniffen with the Hawaii State Department of Transportation. Hello, everybody. Um, absolutely horrific situation that we're trying to work through right now. And re really, hearts and, hearts and prayers go out to, to, to Maui, Maui County. Um, we are strongly discouraging non-essential travel to Maui, but the airports are still operating efficiently. Uh, right now, last night, we had 2,000 people staying over at the airport who got stuck either on the, um, because they couldn't get on the red eye or they were waiting for other flights to come in. Uh, we made sure that we processed them through this morning. Uh, we're working with our airline um, partners on, on all of that. There's another 4,000 visitors that we're expecting who want to leave the island uh, from the west side. So Kahikili Highway is open on the, the back road to make sure that they can, you can come from Lahaina or the west side into town to get to Kahului. Um, and the Honopilani Highway and the bypass are closed at, or for, for operational or emergency responders only at this time. There's just a lot of poles down in different areas, fires jumping in different, different spots, and it's dangerous to, to utilize that roadway. Um, but Kahili is open. Um, we expect everybody to use that to get into, into town, into the airport area. Our airport partners are absolutely amazing. Um, they've, uh, you'll see that they've dropped fares and offered waivers to a lot of travelers to help everybody get off of Maui to make sure that we can, uh, we can move people over to Oahu or, or get them back home, whichever they'd like, um, to ensure that we can start using the resources to recover um, and, and focus on the residents of Maui in that area. Um, we'll, we'll keep updating on our web pages um, the accessibility of all of our highways and if any impacts uh, occur at the airports. I would recommend to everybody, um, anytime we have travel like this that's, that's um, impacted on one island, it's going to impact others. So before you head down to the airport, if you're going to travel anywhere, before you get, head down to the airport, make sure you check in with your airlines, check in on the, on the status of your flight to ensure that it's on time. Thank you very much. Mahalo, Director Sniffen. Finally, I'd like to bring up Director Jimmy Tokioka with the State Department of Business, Economic Development, and Tourism. Good morning. Um, it's, as everyone has said, it's an incredibly sad day today. We've seen the devastation. We can compare it, uh, coming from, myself coming from Kauai to Iniki, but the difference is Nobody was prepared for this. You could see the hurricane coming. So I want to ask that as the administration, we're communicating with all of the people involved uh, from the federal government to the state government to the counties. But to the visitors who are watching this and, and looking for answers, we're going to ask for your patience because this is a stressful time. None of us were prepared for this, but we're preparing very well for this. And General Hara is at the command. So we have the confidence that he's handled these situations before. In my in my role, we are um, preparing the convention center. And early this morning, even prior to the uh, proclamation for support at the convention center, we set it up to potentially accommodate 4,000 people. Um, they're cooking food. Uh, their preparations are there. The Red Cross is going over and setting all of that up. But 
Um, it is it is a, a tall task. The city buses will be transporting people from the airport to the convention center, and we are working right now with the airport and the city to accommodate those uh, that transportation um, for the visitors that are coming. But I also want to say it's not only for the visitors. Local people have lost everything. They've lost their house. They've lost their animals, and it's it's devastating. So we're, we would we also are reaching out to local people that. The shelters on Maui may be full, so you may not have an option, but you do have an option here on Oahu at the convention center. So we wanted to make sure that you knew that. Um, I particularly want to thank um, at the convention center Kalani Ka'ana'ana and Daniel Naho'opili and Terry Orton for accommodating this. I don't think Kalani slept yet since we got the calls last night. And we also want to thank Jerry Gibson from the Hotel Association. We will have booths set up there that will tell and inform guests that are coming what the hotel status is, uh, what the rate is, and the hotels that have occupancy. So on behalf of DBED and uh, Hawaii Tourism Authority, uh, once again, it's a sad day, but we thank everyone for the cooperation. Aloha and mahalo. Mahalo, at this time, we'll open up for a live Q&A with the media. And I'm going to repeat the question. I'm inviting actor, Acting Governor Sylvia Luke up, but um, either she or I will repeat the question so that everybody can understand. Um, so the first question is going to go to uh, star advertiser Dan Nicasso. Thanks, uh, Questions for Mayor Bissett. Okay. Do you have an estimate of injuries and of the six fatalities? Were they ocean, Were they drowning or were they... Before you answer, Mayor, the question is around, do we have an update on fatalities and injuries um, on Maui County? You know, I don't have the specifics uh, for those uh, six um, confirmed fatalities that we have. Um, and that was because I got that number just really literally the minute before we uh, came on to this uh, press conference. Uh, we've been trying to get that update. Uh, this morning was the first time we were able to assess, uh, obviously during daylight hours, what was happening. And so th that's based on that. As far as injuries, we've had, um, we've had a few injuries. Some, I think we um, sent folks to Straub. I'm trying to think there were about maybe six or so. Uh, not all were burn-related. Three of them were. Um, and we also had a firefighter that uh, suffered smoke inhalation. Uh, that firefighter was also treated and I believe transported over to a hospital over on Oahu, um, but it was in stable condition. Um, so we did have some injuries as well. The we question. I'm sorry. I heard. Sorry, you want to okay. repeat the question? The question is, how many businesses have been impacted? Uh, we don't have that exact number just yet. Again, we're we're still in the assessment phase this morning. Now that we have light, um, so I don't want to take a guess uh, at the number, but it's uh, it's quite it's going to be a high number. Um, again, power is still out in that part of the island. There were 29 uh, poles, or 30 poles that were down. Uh, 29 in Lahaina itself, and so we have not yet been able to restore that um, to get a better idea 
uh, and the fire is is still going is still going on in Lima. We've been listening to an update uh, from officials in Hawaii as Maui deals with devastating wildfires. The mayor of Maui County announced that six people have been killed in the wildfires and that search and rescue efforts are still underway. They had trouble getting helicopters up yesterday, but they are up today. Officials also say hospitals are overwhelmed with burn patients and those suffering from smoke inhalation. These violent and explosive wildfires are not under control on Maui, which is the second largest of Hawaii's 137 islands. Uh, These fires are being fueled by strong winds from a hurricane 800 miles away. Let's bring in CNN's chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir, now, as well as meteorologist Chad Myers. Bill, how unprecedented is this kind of situation in Hawaii? You know, Jake, you could hear it in the voice of the lieutenant governor who was talking about the fact we are prepared as Hawaiians out there vulnerable in the middle of the Pacific when it comes to hurricanes. They know what to do when it comes to volcanic eruptions on the big island. They know what to do. But this fire moves so quickly. And the pictures we're seeing now from the air really hearken for me back to Paradise, California, which was almost completely incinerated by such fast moving walls of fire and people had nowhere to go. On these coastal communities, there's usually a ring road. There's not a whole lot of place uh, to get out. And they have been just suffering uh, weeks of very dry, windy conditions, low humidity there. The leeward side of the island's much drier than anybody had anticipated. And so people just weren't ready for this. And it's heartbreaking. Lahaina Town is one of the most charming uh, beach towns anywhere in the world. There's massive big banyan tree in the center of town. It looks like almost all of it. Uh, was burned away there. Uh, The first season of uh, The White Lotus was filmed in Wailea at the Four Seasons. There's a fire near there. And there's another third fire sort of closer to the middle of Maui. And you can tell they're just really just coming to grips with it now. So much wind and smoke that they don't even have a full assessment yet. Chad, um, we're told that that the fires are made much worse by uh, these hurricane winds from 800 miles away. How how soon might these strong winds die down? I think they die down tonight, probably down to around 40. Now, that's still a very gusty storm, especially when you have so many fires out there. It wasn't only the hurricane itself that was well south of there, but also this high pressure that was north of there and this funneling effect right through the Hawaiian Islands. And I don't know if you were watching any of those pictures at home when they were having that flyover. It was still very smoky. But you could see all of the homes that were just no longer there. In the overnight pictures that I watched earlier today, you could see just hot spots in the dark, and we were all hoping that those were just trees. But in fact, in those nighttime pictures, those hot spots from the flyover then on the drone video, those were homes. Those homes are now completely gone. The videos that we were just looking at were almost unfathomable. And, you know, the one, one little lieutenant there, I think he was, um, said that this reminded him of Aniki. And I was on Kauai and in Poipu where Aniki hit about three weeks after, and that was absolute devastation. So if he's looking at this like Poipu was in 1992, that's how devastating this is at this point in time. It is still windy right now. It is still very dry. There still will be more threats of fires again tonight. The fire lines are so large right now, it's going to be very difficult to get every single one of those fires out quickly. 
And we are, of course, as Bill would tell you, in drought there in Hawaii. Yeah. CNN, uh, Chad Myers and Bill Weir, thanks to both of you. Maui's, Maui County's Chief of Communications and Public Affairs, Mahina Martin, joins us now. Um, Ms. Martin, thanks for joining us. So we just heard s- six people have unfortunately been confirmed dead. Uh, a horrible number. Do, do you expect that number to get even bigger? I think these are early numbers. Uh, the daylight broke this morning. And as you heard uh, Mayor Bisson say, you know, this is a truly sad day with six fatalities. We are going to um, keep our thoughts on the families, and it's important now that our efforts are uh, geared up for understanding what else may be happening in those areas that were affected in the nightfall as well as yesterday. Crews are still in search and rescue mode, um, we were just told. How is that effort going as the wildfires continue to rage? Well, these are still active fires. Uh, Search and rescue efforts will come in areas that are deemed safe and accessible for those crews. So these are completely active fires. I think it's important to keep that in mind, and it's going to be a case-by-case, area-by-area, neighborhood-by-neighborhood situation. 911 service and cell service has been out uh, in West Maui. Um, What is the current status of emergency communications on the western part of the island? On the western part of Maui, yes. 911 services remain uh, very limited. You can uh, use it on this side of the island, but in Lahaina and any areas in that uh, West Maui district, landlines can call a direct number to the Lahaina fire station that we've been providing. Cell towers, unfortunately, have been up, and that's been um, very problematic for us in communication. And this fire seemed to move extremely quickly. Some evacuation orders came in the middle of the night. Did these fires come as a complete shock to Maui officials, the size and how catastrophic they seem? Yes, I, the, the winds alone in one area on the mountainside of Kula, we have reports of wind gusts up to 80 miles an hour. Those rapidly spread the fire in the West Maui area with a very mix of commercial shops, as you saw some of the footage uh, circulating, as well as the residential areas. It spread quickly. Um, it's very, very unfortunate. We had three separate fires going on in three separate areas of the island. Uh, we deployed pretty much it's been hands-on, all hands on deck throughout the island for our emergency responders. All right, Mahina Martin, uh, thank you so much. Uh, and obviously our thoughts and prayers uh, are going to the people of Maui. Um, we're going to have much more from Hawaii ahead. We're also following some major developments uh, in the consequences facing those who tried to overturn the 2020 election. Sources tell CNN that more than a dozen people could soon be indicted in the Fulton County, Georgia investigation, plus in a federal case. Newly unsealed court documents showed that the special counsel secured a search warrant for Donald Trump's Twitter account. We have a busy afternoon here on The Lead. Stay with us. Welcome back. Uh, We are going to continue our coverage of these violent and explosive wildfires in Hawaii. Officials confirming a few minutes ago that six people have been killed, though that number is expected to rise. Search and rescue efforts remain underway. Let's bring in the director of operations for Air Maui Helicopters, Richie Olston. And Richie, you flew over the devastation today. Tell us what you saw. Well, we uh, 
we wanted to see what kind of damage there was because we just saw bits and pieces on the news last night from our homes. And so we thought we'd fly over there and see if there was some kind of aid that our company could give to the, the people on that side. But we were not prepared for what we saw. The, uh, it was heartbreaking. It looked like an area that had been bombed in the war. The devastation, the hundreds of homes destroyed, the entire area of Front Street burned to the ground, the historic area burned to the ground. The harbor, the boats in the harbor burned to the water. Uh, it's just destroyed these historic buildings that can't be replaced. Uh, people that, you know, out of their homes, hundreds of people with no place to stay. Uh, just, I had two other pilots with me and a couple of our mechanics. And when we landed, we were just in tears, you know, our hearts going out to the people of Lahaina on that side of the island and what they went through last night. They must have been terrorized as the flames swept through the town and they and they escaped to wherever they went to the shelters. It was just, it was devastating. It was, uh, in my 52 years of flying on Maui, I've never seen anything like that in my life. And uh, it, like I said, we weren't prepared to see that kind of a destruction. And... I mean, are there hopes that the that the winds will die? We, our Chad Myers, our, our weather guy, told us that the hope is that the winds will die down uh, this evening. I'm just wondering if there is any sort of hope in sight here beyond that. Yeah, we were as a family praying for that to happen last night. And right now, here at the airport, it's not as windy as it was yesterday and the day before. So the winds have died down a little bit. We're hoping that they're not going to pick up you know, super strong again this afternoon and this evening. And when we were returning from viewing the fire, Windward Aviation was on their way out there with their helicopters with the buckets to try to extinguish the remaining small fires that were off in the fields and areas above the town. Richie Olsen, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Turning now to our law and justice lead, uh, more legal trouble could be brewing for Donald Trump and not only Donald Trump, but his allies. CNN is reporting that Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is expected to indict more than a dozen people as soon as next week. Willis, of course, has been investigating actions taken by Trump and his allies to try to overturn the results in Georgia in the 2020 election in a state that Joe Biden won including efforts to pressure election officials, a plot to put forward fake electors, and a voting system's breach in one county. CNN Sarah Murray joins us now. Sarah, indictments against more than a dozen people. So who might that include? Well, you know, look, she's got a pretty wide scope of her investigation. So there are some familiar names I think we're looking for. Rudy Giuliani, Trump's former attorney, was told months and months ago he was a target in this investigation. Same with David Schaefer, the head of the Republican Party in Georgia who served as a fake elector. And of course, Donald Trump himself is at the center of this investigation. His team believes that he is going to be indicted for a fourth time. But again, there are people who were involved in the Coffee County voting systems breach that are worried that they are going to be on the list of people who could be charged. There are people who pressured election officials who have concerns that they could be among those charged. So we will see what happens when she goes before a grand jury next week and makes her case seeking these indictments. Right. And this will be the first time uh, Georgia charges are brought. We've had federal charges. Um, you're also learning that uh, Fannie Willis, the district attorney in Fulton County, has been eyeing conspiracy and racketeering 
charges. What, what might that indicate about the breadth of this case? So it basically allows her to charge multiple defendants at once and sort of craft this narrative that this was all sort of part of a criminal enterprise. And if she decides to charge Donald Trump, that Donald Trump was at the head of it and that all of these efforts were essentially linked. So it allows you to sort of weave together a narrative of what happened around the 2020 election. And also when you're looking at these racketeering charges, they come with much steeper penalties than some of the underlying crimes. So if you want to pressure a witness to flip, if you want to pressure, you know, a defendant to try to take a plea deal, this gives more leverage to the prosecutor. Fascinating. Sarah Murray, thanks so much. And of course, we also have federal charges against Donald Trump in our law and justice lead today. A newly obtained court filing shows that special counsel Jack Smith's team secured a search warrant back in January for Donald Trump's Twitter account. This was part of their investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election on a federal level. The search was so secret, Twitter was barred from telling Trump it was even happening. Twitter, which we should note has changed its name to X, was fined $350,000 for delaying handing over its records to the special counsel. But the company, run by Elon Musk, ultimately did comply. CNN's Paula Reed is here with us now. Paula, break down this story for us. What kind of information were prosecutors hoping to gain from Twitter, Twitter from Donald Trump's Twitter account? I mean, the public posts are, are, are there. Exactly. It suggests that they wanted something that was not public. But this opinion is clearly written in a way as to obscure what the specific request was beyond just data and records. It's very clear from the way this is written that they did not want us to know. And it's also clear that there was some tension, the government being frustrated with Twitter for maybe dropping hints in some of these hearings about what the request was. And Twitter then also blasting the government for not being clear enough about exactly what it was they were seeking. Hmm. Why did Twitter, run by Elon Musk, we should note, delay handing over records of of Trump's uh, Twitter account. So they did not appear to object to the warrant itself, but they took issue with the secrecy, not being able to inform uh, Trump about this warrant. They argued that was a violation of the First Amendment and the current laws that govern electronic communications and social media. Now, one of the arguments that prosecutors made is they said, look, if he knows about this warrant, he could try to potentially destroy evidence or even flee. But when the judge made their decision on this case, they did not take into consideration him being a real flight risk. Why did prosecutors ultimately agree to allow Twitter to tell Trump about the search warrant? Eventually, they felt enough was public about this investigation that it was okay to inform him about the warrant. But they were careful to try to protect the identities of investigators. And Jake, that's something that we see now. Almost eight months after this warrant was first requested, there are concerns about the former president lashing out at the people running this investigation. All right, Paula Reed, thanks so much. With us now to discuss CNN senior legal analyst, Ali Honig. Ali, what would prosecutors be looking for on Trump's Twitter account that wasn't already public in his tweets? Yeah, Jake, if it was just Donald Trump's public tweets, those are already publicly available. You could just get them by subpoena, which is a much easier method. The fact that they went and got a search warrant tells me prosecutors we're looking for something more. And that could include draft but unsent tweets. And I base that on a couple of things. First of all, I know from my own experience, prosecutors and investigators often want to look into draft emails, draft texts, because you can get some valuable insight into a person's state of mind. And second, if you look at the January 6th committee report, there are several mentions throughout there of draft memos and draft documents, because again, they can be really revealing as to a person's state of mind. Also, of course, DMs, I would think, any private messages exactly. in there, yes. right? Uh, Trump reacted to the news of the search warrant uh, of his Twitter account. He wrote, quote, just found out that crooked Joe Biden's Department of Justice secretly attacked my Twitter account, making it a point not to let me know about this major 
hit, hit in quotes for some inexplicable reason, hit on my civil rights. Nothing like this has ever happened before. Does the First Amendment still exist? Um, Unquote. Ellie, uh, as Paula noted, uh, there are concerns uh, about possible violations of his First Amendment, right? Yeah, but I don't think the First Amendment is going to be an issue here. First of all, Prosecutors use people's statements, their public statements, as evidence of crimes against them all the time. That's sort of evidence 101. The other thing is the way prosecutors did this is they got a search warrant, meaning they had to go to a federal judge, establish probable cause. The judge had to then sign off on it. And I should note, if Donald Trump wants to challenge this search warrant, he absolutely can do that. He can argue prosecutors improperly obtained the search warrant, improperly executed it. It's not going to be a First Amendment question. It's going to be an evidentiary question, but he'll have his chance to challenge this for sure. Turning to Fulton County, you heard CNN Sarah Murray uh, just report uh, that Fannie Willis, a district attorney there in Atlanta, is expected to indict more than a dozen people, perhaps as soon as next week. Uh, are you surprised? Uh, what does that tell you about her case? I am a little surprised. It tells me that Fannie Willis is getting ready to take a very broad, very aggressive swing here. And just for the sake of scale, Jack Smith has indicted one person, of course, Donald Trump, and he's named six other co-conspirators. And that covers the entire nationwide effort to steal this election. And now we hear that Fonnie Willis is looking at indicting a dozen or more people only relating to Georgia. Now, part of that could be consistent with Sarah's reporting that some of the focus is on more local officials who wouldn't necessarily be on Jack Smith's radar. But this is a very aggressive swing and indictment is the easy part for prosecutors. The hard part is going to see whether she can back it up. Do you think that we will see next week, assuming the indictments come down, then 12 people charged in the same indictment or will they be 12 separate indictments maybe? Very interesting strategic decision that's entirely up to the DA. On the one hand, if you charge everyone together, you essentially eliminate any chance you have of trying Donald Trump quickly before the election because your indictment's going to be so heavy, so overloaded with defendants. On the other hand, if you split them into 12 separate indictments, yes, you have a better chance of getting Donald Trump to trial quicker, but then you're asking for 12 separate trials. Each of those people's entitled to their own trials. You can't group them together if they're on separate indictments. So tricky calculus to do here for the prosecutor. Might it be, for instance, Donald Trump in one indictment and then all the fake electors? I'm just making it up. I don't know who she's going to indict, but all the fake electors in another one and then other co-conspirators in a third indictment? Great point. Absolutely. You could do Donald Trump, indict him by himself, and then sort of group the others more than one at a time. Sure. Willis says it's going to take about two days for her to present her case before the grand jury. She's expected to start next week, Monday, theoretically. Could we see these indictments announced as soon as close of business Tuesday? Absolutely. And two days, if that doesn't sound like a lot of time to present a case, you are allowed to summarize evidence in front of a grand jury. So you don't have to call every single witness individually. You can call, for example, a law enforcement agent who can summarize vast amounts of information. And all signs, Jake, are pointing to us getting word of this indictment very quickly, if not immediately after it's returned. All right, Ellie Honig, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's go now to the world lead, Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky met top military commanders today to discuss their counteroffensive. He acknowledged that beating the Russians back has not been easy and is progressing much slower than some, including the U.S., had hoped. Ukrainian forces are tasked with breaking through Russia's multi-layered defensive lines in the eastern and southern parts of the country. Those lines are riddled with tens of thousands of mines and vast networks of trenches like you saw in World War I. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh is on the southern front where 
Attacks are ramping up, and a, a brief warning now, this viewer may be disturbing for some viewers. The brutal work here the world hasn't seen, but wants its results. From the West, they have words and weapons of support, but out here, it's them alone. In searing heat, cloaked in dust. In the southern counter-offensive near Orkhiv, Ukraine has the initiative. Yet, they have to shoot their way forwards, round by round. The Russians are just past the building on the horizon. Let's keep moving, guys. They're very anxious we leave. We're the first journalist to reach this part of Ukraine's counter-offensive push south towards Robotine. So they're pretty sure the tank was spotted by the Russians, and so now we're moving fast out of here because they're expecting return fire. The losses from their early assaults evident. This a destroyed US-supplied Bradley armoured vehicle. In this thick dust, these tankers moving forwards to fire at Russian positions, which they say are beginning to look in peril as Ukraine's southern counter-offensive pushes forwards. The 15th National Guard have lost many friends here, but also gained ground. It has been incredibly tough, but some faces we saw over the past week have brightened. Robotine has got closer. Some of the assessment of their fight and the tools given towards it grates here. They're being expected to do things no NATO army would attempt with equipment they'd scoff at. The Humvee we travel in, with tyres so threadbare, no American soldier would be expected to drive it. They have no time for armchair assessments that they're failing. And that underestimation is visible here, in the nearest town of Orkhiv, pummeled by the main problem, Russian air superiority and the half-ton bombs they drop. At any moment, it may not matter how much cover you have. In Moscow's warped world of targeting, it is these men, the military medics, who feel hunted. The underground world in which they live is hidden, as their last two triage points have been bombed. And in the three hours a day they spend above ground, this is what happens. This is rare footage of their frontline rescues. The painkillers, clearly not enough. Treatments given at up to 100 miles an hour. Over bumpy, shelled roads. It seems miraculous anyone makes it. Sometimes they don't all come back. On Friday, fellow medic André, aged 33, was hit by artillery. They buried him Monday. Тіло, 
і доставляти його до відповідного заходу. Ну, сім'я, батьки, мати, то вони на тим, ну, наразі тимчасово окуповані території Запорізької області. Вони не змогли навіть приїхати фактично на поховання. Down here, death is far too close, and they seem to shut it out. Коли як, якщо десь, я не знаю, навіть далі 100 метрів, то вже не звертаємо увагу. Якщо десь рядом, то тоді, тоді у нас просто історичний сміх. Я завжди всіх підбрю, кажу, ми всі помремо, але трошки пізніше, коли років через 50. They need the war to end in months, though, not years, before nothing but dust is left. Now, the medics you saw in that report, well, they were treating casualties this morning. It appears people caught in another Russian minefield, troops, that is, and also, too, in that town of Orokiv. We spent a lot of time in it over the past months. A key centre for humanitarian aid that was hit in June, where many lives were lost. The devastation there, quite startling, what these half-ton bombs dropped by Russians. On one morning, we were in there, 14 in one morning alone, the damage that's doing to that town. Jake? And Nick, you're part of the only news media crew allowed into this part of the front lines. What did people tell you about this ongoing offensive? Look, it's rare to get a view of this part of the counteroffensive, the main thrust of what Ukraine is doing right here. Yes, they're pushing along the south, but this is where the majority of their effort is, where all, frankly, the chips are being laid down. And it's important to take one thing away. When you hear all this criticism uh, of Western analysts that this isn't going as fast as they'd like, they're not really feeling the pace of change they wanted or expected that NATO-supplied arms would bring. Well, some of those arms aren't really as good as perhaps they said on the can. You saw the threadbare tyres on a Humvee there. Imagine giving that to somebody in the 101st Mountain. Um, but at the same time, they're dealing with extraordinary Russian air power here. They don't control the skies. They're vulnerable to drones, Russian jets, missiles. We heard them ourselves. We saw the damage that they can do. No NATO army would try this without air superiority. Yet somehow there are those in NATO and the West hoping the Ukrainians can suddenly train on these new weapons and achieve the whole thing without controlling the skies. It's slow. They're dying. And I think at times they wish people were more patient about their sacrifice. Jake? All right, Nick Payton Walsh, thank you so much for that remarkable reporting. Also in our world lead, an answered prayer. American nurse Alex Dorsonville and her daughter have just been released nearly two weeks after they were kidnapped in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. The community ministry, Elroy Haiti, where Dorsonville works, released a statement confirming their return. Gangs in Haiti frequently carry out kidnapping for profit operations targeting local communities for ransom payments. According to one U.N. report, there were 1,014 kidnappings in Haiti from January to June just this year. Also in our world lead, 41 people reportedly died in a migrant shipwreck near the Italian island of Lampedusa. Four survivors told the Red Cross that the migrant boat left Sfax, Tunisia several days ago and that 45 people, including several children, were on board when the boat capsized after being hit by a big wave within an hour of departing Tunisia. This is just the latest tragedy amid a spike of people making the dangerous sea crossing from northern Africa to Europe. According to the Italian government, 93,754 refugees have arrived in Italy by boat this year, 
The United Nations estimates that more than 1,800 refugees have been reported dead and missing so far this year. Several developments were following this hour. Those now deadly wildfires in Hawaii. Six people have been killed, plus that investigation in Georgia ramping up into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. More than 12 indictments could be on the way there. We're also just learning FBI agents shot and killed a man suspected of threatening President Biden. We'll have much more of the news ahead. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, gas prices are on the rise. Americans have more than $1 trillion in credit card debt for the first time ever, and more people than ever are borrowing money from their 401k plans. But inflation is falling, and the job market has been strong. Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts will join me live to discuss the economic disconnect. Plus, CNN has learned that starting next week, more than a dozen people could be indicted in the Georgia election probe involving Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election results in that state. Is Donald Trump on this list? But leading this hour, apocalyptic images from Hawaii, where wildfires have killed at least six people in Maui County. Violent and explosive wildfires have torn through the island of Maui, destroying homes and businesses. The fires being fueled by a hurricane 800 miles away. It erupted so suddenly people had to run into the ocean to escape the fire and then later be rescued. CNN's Derek Van Dam is with us now. And Derek, we just heard from authorities in Hawaii. They say the fire is still burning. And, and it's likely to continue as well, Jake. I mean, we still have the indirect impacts from Hurricane Dora and high pressure system to the north. So what it's doing is it's putting the squeeze right on the Hawaiian islands and allowing those winds out of the east to gust. Well, we just checked over 40 miles per hour in some of those locations. That's going to obviously complicate fire efforts. But look at the aerial video that you're seeing on your screens right now. This is imperative because uh, the, the fire that impacted the west side of uh, Maui, the, uh, the, the location, the economic hub of Miami, where all the resorts and businesses are generally located, where people go as tourists to visit. Well, the fire ran out of room to burn, literally moving into the ocean uh, as it literally had nothing else to char. But uh, it was just incredibly harrowing moments. Uh, there were adjectives used like dire and apocalyptic, and you can see exactly why with some of these first aerial visuals that we are getting. Now, everyone in Hawaii knows how to handle a hurricane. Everyone knows how to handle a volcano as well, as difficult as it can be. But this caught people off guard. As a meteorologist, we were watching Hurricane Dora slide well south of the island chain. It wasn't a concern for us. We thought it was fish food, literally not impacting land. But the fact is that it created a phenomenon with the winds that no one could have foreseen, and it caught people off guard in the middle of the night when people were sleeping. So you can imagine just how terrifying those moments were overnight when we started to see those little flashpoints, the little hot spots on satellite imagery that meteorologists look at. We started to see those flare up, and that was a concern, and we immediately started to recognize that there was a problem. Social media videos start pouring in, and then we start to learn about the communications going down, 911 not becoming available for uh, residents over the western side of the island of Maui. Think how concerning and how terrifying those moments must have been for people not being able to reach out for help. Well, that's what people had to endure. Jake, All right, Derek Grandam, th- Derek Grandam, thank you so much. Joining us now, Quentin Kachi is the president of Blue Hawaiian Helicopters, a helicopter tourism 
company in Quentin, you suspended operations to use your helicopter fleet to help get food, water, and other supplies into areas of Maui that are the hardest hit. Tell us what your staff is seeing in these hardest hit areas. Aloha. Good afternoon. Yeah, it was a devastating night. I don't think many people slept across the state. Um, we canceled all of our tourism operation and just really partnering with the state and focusing on taking care of the people at need. Um, our, we got authorization to find a, a, one of the other airports near or closer to Lahaina where we can bring in food and water and support. Good thing about, you know, helicopters, they do have the versatility to land, you know, on different locations like a golf course or uh, this smaller airport over on the west side. But it, seeing it from the air and seeing the pictures just don't do it justice. It's just absolutely tragic, devastating. Um, several coworkers have lost their homes. We have um, business partners that have, you know, their complete businesses in Lahaina have burned down, and it's just, Tears just keep pouring and pouring from people's faces as we kind of work through the morning and all wake up and realize what we have in front of us. Tell us about how your own staff has been personally impacted by this. I know you're trying to help locate some of your teammates in these impacted areas who might not have even had um, electricity or calm since yesterday. Anybody that's been Hawaii, been to Hawaii, knows Hawaii. I mean, we're all Ohana. We're all family. Uh, we all love and care for each other so much, and it's this heart. It's just devastating, and not being able to get a hold of some of your coworkers. It just you can't stop thinking about it. We actually had I have a friend that's a runner has gone through in, in the areas that you're able to ask to access, um, gone and knock on doors and got some verification that people are okay. But the fires are still going. The winds are still there. There's still you know ashes and uh, hot spots. So we just have to be careful. It's very limited. Um, the road from the airport, the main airport in Maui, the Kahului Airport, um, they call it the Poly Road. It's just a two-lane road that has been closed, and so there's limited access in and out, limited cell coverage, no Internet. They haven't had power in 24 hours, uh, so it's just really hard, and it's going to take you know, probably days before we know everybody's okay. Helicopters can land in, in just about any terrain, although obviously it's, it's dangerous, um, these are particularly dangerous conditions. Ha- have you ever seen anything like this as, as a helicopter pilot? Uh, I'm specifically not a pilot. I'm the president of the company. But what we do is we're landing at Kapalua Airport, and safety is our number one priority. We do a full risk assessment. We evaluate the winds. We evaluate everything safety, and we will not go um, if it is not safe. So safety is just our number one priority. We'll never put our employees or anybody at risk um, before we do that. And that's why we're landing at the designated airport versus some of these other spots as of now, just because it is the safest thing to do. Quentin Koch, thank you so much. Let's go now to meteorologist Chad Myers for the latest forecast. And and Chad, uh, when do you think these horrible conditions are going to get better? I know you said earlier that the, the, the winds, these devastating winds from 800 miles away from that hurricane, you hope will, will alleviate this evening because the hurricane is moving away. So as the hurricane moves away, so will the wind. What happened here, and and Derek really hit a good deal here, the high pressure to the north, and it was blowing like this. The low pressure, the hurricane down to the south, it was blowing like this. And so all of that wind funneling through the islands, and we had the hot spots 
and the hotspot showed up, and then all of a sudden we had video and pictures, and it is a devastating event. Block after block of the homes just gone, reminding you, reminding me of something from Southern California. 82 is the highest gust that we saw. That's just an enormous amount of wind when you consider how far away the hurricane actually is. At this point in time, like 800 miles away. So yes, I mean, our hurricanes can hit Hawaii and do, and we do have winds of 60, 70, 80 sometimes, but boy, this was just a dry event. There goes the hurricane, Category 4. Look how far away the Honolulu Islands are. So it is going to be a brutal afternoon and evening. Some of the pictures we're seeing now finally coming in are are, are devastatingly painful. They really are. Jake, I mean, when you see the dark pictures that we only had this morning, and we thought that they were just hopefully burning trees, but in fact, they weren't. They were burning homes. They were just hot spots of what was left of the home. So there goes the storm. It is going to be a much less impressive storm in a couple of days. And the more it moves farther and farther away, tonight winds will be 40, tomorrow they'll be 30. And then by the time we work into the weekend, the winds could be 10, just about exactly what you'd expect from the trades. All right, Chad Myers, thanks so much. Let's go now to Jeff Hickman. He's the Director of Communications for Hawaii's Department of Defense. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Uh, Tell us the status of what the National Guard is focusing on right now as these fires continue uh, to burn out of control in Maui. Hello, Jake, for having me. Yes, the Hawaii National Guard is assisting both Maui County and Hawaii County, two islands. So on Maui County, we have about 39 personnel assisting the Maui Police Department with traffic control and roving security. Right now, the number one goal for both counties and the Hawaii National Guard is to to protect lives. And by setting up these roadblocks, that's right now one of the best ways we can do it. So the National Guard is assisting both police departments who have been working 24 hours and are running out of personnel um, to do it. So the Hawaii National Guard is assisting them, and I think they're even requesting more personnel uh, for the very near future. The Hawaii National Guard is also sending two Chinook CH-47 helicopters to Maui. They're on the ground right now getting their assignment to head uh, to their upcountry area of Maui on the slopes of Haleakala to assist with the fire suppression up there. They'll be carrying 4,000-gallon water buckets and be able to do drops about four to five an hour. And then on the Big Island, we have about 30 personnel also assisting with uh, traffic control and checkpoints. And the active duty Army is assisting with fire suppression on Hawaii Island. Hawaii's lieutenant governor, uh, who is acting governor because the governor is, is traveling right now, the lieutenant governor has called on the White House to declare a federal emergency. Um, do you second that call? I, I think that's, that's a great call. She's my boss um, right now. And so uh, the FEMA and the federal government have stepped in during our major disasters. This, by far, is one of the worst. Uh, Hurricane Iniki in 91. We've had lava in 2014 and 2018, but this fire is by far more devastating and quicker. I mean, my goodness, in two days, the destruction that's caused this morning when the sun came up, that was the first time Maui and the Big Island of Hawaii could actually see the damage and start to make assessments. So any help we can get from the federal government is is a plus. Thank you so much, Jeff Hickman. Uh, we appreciate your time. Let's bring in uh, Kimo Falconer, a resident of Lahaina, who has a 500-acre coffee farm, Maui-grown coffee. Um, Kimo, thank you for joining us. You say that at around 3 a.m. you went to check on your factory. You could not get there. Tell us what you saw. Tell us about your experience. Yes, uh, good morning. Um, good morning here. Uh, 
not, uh, I was trying to get down to where our processing plant is. I still have not been able to get down there. Um, it was pretty much bedlam, as much as you can say bedlam. It, we watched the fire move all day yesterday into town and went north and went south to every single area where the um, and from the south side all the way to the north is completely. As I went through this morning, I couldn't get as far as I wanted to. There weren't roadblocks, but there was telephone poles across the highway that were burning. So I, you know, couldn't go past that. So now I'm looking for a couple of personnel uh, who are, you know, heroes in my mind that I've been able to locate them. I know they were in the middle of fighting this thing last night. That's the last I heard from them. So unfortunately, I can't leave where I'm at. I'm at my house, which is about two miles away. I'm looking at Lahaina right now. Um, and because if I leave, then the police down at the end of the street are going to escort me out of here. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just just hanging loose up here and hoping I get phone calls from friends and neighbors and people who, you know, give me the information I need. You say, um, well, let me ask you, the Maui mayor says the number of businesses impacted is going to be very high. What, what sort of resources will be needed to rebuild, do you think? Well, I mean, it's hard to say. Well, let's put it one way. So Lahaina is with most of the people that work on West Maui and a lot of people that even work on the other side of the island live in Lahaina. I'm guessing maybe 25,000 to 30,000 people are going to be homeless because of this fire. And, and that's a, just a wild guess, just because I've lived in this neighborhood, you know, I've lived in this community for over 40 years. Um, hotels haven't been, uh, you know, north of us in, in Kanapali. I don't believe they've been impacted in terms of fire, but they're definitely the ones in Lahaina are, are gone. They're just gone. <clears throat> in fact, our family owns a, uh, one of the oldest hotels in, in, in Maui and in Lahaina in the state, right there in Lahaina town. And it's completely ashes today. So it's, it's heartbreaking. We haven't been able to, I mean, honestly get our, get our thoughts around this thing because we haven't personally gone to see this, this, what happened yet. Um, but I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's crazy. There all these anecdotal stories about people jumping in the ocean. And I thought that was kind of not to hear that, but I see, National Guard helicopters going up and down shoreline right now, looking for people, I think. I guess that's the reason why they're doing it. They're not, they're not dumping water on fires. Chemo Falconer, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time today. Yeah, you got it. No problem. Thank you. Coming up, will Donald Trump be indicted for a fourth time? CNN has learned that more than a dozen people could be indicted in Fulton County, Georgia, in connection with the president and his allies' former effort to overturn the 2020 election. What we're learning about the indictments that could come as soon as next week, stay with us. We're back with our Law and Justice lead with stunning news out of Fulton County, Georgia. Sources telling CNN that District Attorney Fonnie Willis is expected to seek more than a dozen indictments next week in her invest in investigation into Donald Trump and his allies' attempts to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. Trump expects he will be one of those indictments, we are told, as do a number of his close acolytes. You might remember this investigation started in early 2021 when Trump made this call to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, pressuring him to, quote unquote, find enough votes to flip the state from Biden, who had legitimately won, to Trump, who had not. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find... Uh, 
11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. He had not won the state. CNN Sarah Murray joins me live. Sarah, what do we know about these potential charges? Well, look, we know that she is going to go before a grand jury next week. She's going to seek charges, and we expect her to seek charges against more than a dozen individuals who are involved in this sprawling investigation. You know, she's been looking at a racketeering and conspiracy case, which allows her to sort of craft this narrative about what happened around the 2020 election and how not just Donald Trump was involved, but all these other folks were involved, whether it had to do with the fake elector scheme, whether it had to do with pressuring election workers there, or whether it had to do with the voting systems breach in rural Coffee County. And a number of people who were involved in all of those different schemes are concerned that they could be on the list of people facing charges next week. Jake. So next week, you say, walk us through the possible timeline and how soon we could learn about any actual indictments. So there are two grand juries that are meeting regularly in Fulton County. One meets Monday and Tuesday. The other meets Thursday and Friday. And again, Fonnie Willis has lined up these witnesses that she wants to call before this grand jury to create this narrative about what happened. Those witnesses have been told, we'll give you a 48-hour heads up about when you should show up to testify. So we should get a little bit of lead time that gives us a signal of, you know, is this going before the grand jury on Monday, Tuesday? Is it going before the grand jury Thursday, Friday? We expect her to take about two days to present her case. Uh, So we should get a sense, you know, by next week. And we're told that she, the district attorney, is under extra security protection now? She is. She has extra security protection. My colleague Ryan Young has reported. I mean, obviously, she's faced a number of threats. She's a black Democratic district attorney in the South. We've already seen the ramp up, of course, around the courthouse. We've seen the barriers go up. We've seen them close the streets. But there are, of course, concerns about her physical protection. She has long said she feels comfortable with the security around her, but clearly they're beefing this up as we get into this period where she will make her charging announcements. All right, Sarah Murray, thanks so much. This is not the only major development today in a Trump investigation. A newly obtained court filing shows that special counsel Jack Smith, who's in charge of the federal investigation, obtained a search warrant for Trump's Twitter account. CNN's Caitlin Plants broke this story for CNN. Caitlin, what exactly were prosecutors looking for? Well, Jake, we're a little thin on exact details there, but we know that prosecutors believed that they would find evidence of a crime in Donald Trump's Twitter account, Real Donald Trump, the account that was shut down after January 6th. They believed that. They said it to a judge. A judge agreed. And then they were, at the beginning of this year, able to get the documents from Twitter, the records of Trump's Twitter account, Ultimately, we did see several tweets, more than a dozen Trump tweets in the indictment against the former president that was filed publicly in court last week. We're now seeing what happened in this sealed proceeding that was taking place before that indictment was filed. Those tweets largely are from the time around January 6th. They're public tweets, but we still don't know the full story uh, because what is in the court filing, it's not specifying exactly what they were looking for. They're using very vague language about this, that it's records related to Trump's Twitter account. We don't know if they were looking for other things like direct messages, uh, other pieces of data or metadata that Twitter might have. But at very least, they were looking for the tweets themselves so they can get them as evidence now in the indictment. And and Twitter officials uh, were given a gag order. They were not allowed to tell Donald Trump about the search. Twitter fought that decision. They lost in court. Why did prosecutors think it was so important for Twitter to not tell Trump what what was happening? Yeah, this is a really intriguing ripple of the story that we also don't have a full explanation of. But what we have in this court filing is that 
We have the judge saying uh, and the court, the appeals court reciting what the judge found was that there was reasonable grounds to believe that disclosing the warrant to former President Trump would seriously jeopardize the ongoing investigation by giving him an opportunity to destroy evidence, change patterns of behavior or notify Confederates. So there was concern they could chill the investigation. Twitter at a hearing that was sealed back in February said, guys, the cat's out of the bag. This special counsel's investigation, everyone knows about it. We know they're looking at Trump. Why can't we tell Trump that you're seeking this search warrant? And the Justice Department at that time said, Twitter doesn't have the full story. They're not presenting the whole story. And there's still information redacted here about what they were looking for. So I, we just don't know how to put that together right now. Uh, but we do know that there was real fear that this search warrant would somehow set off Donald Trump back in January and February of this year. Hmm. All right, Caitlin and Sarah, thanks to both of you. Let's discuss with Sarah Fisher, a senior media reporter at Axios, uh, as well as former federal prosecutor Renato Mariotti. Sarah, when it comes to Georgia, we're talking about a potential fourth Trump indictment. This does sound as though it could be more sprawling, at least 12 indictments expected At the end of the day, do you think that this is going to play out any differently than the previous three indictments? Well, it could possibly. And as it pertains to Twitter, one of the things I'm really curious about, Jake, is drafts. Remember, one of the things that they're looking for is trying to understand when Donald Trump was making comments, when he was potentially looking to say things that could quell dissent and the riots going into Capitol Hill, et cetera. Those are the types of things, the metadata that Caitlin spoke about that could be within his account, that if Donald Trump was tipped off, he could go in and potentially delete it. So you could see why they would want to keep that Quiet. In terms of what's you know coming next for the fourth indictment and what could be different, I'll say on the media front, one of the things we've been tracking a lot is the public's attention to all of these different legal challenges and indictments. And one of the things we found is that it just continues to wane. And that's also reflected in Donald Trump's finances. CNN and others have reported that this you know Trump campaign is bringing in less and less money every time a new indictment or a new legal challenge is brought forth, just because there seems to be you know indictment fatigue at this point. Renato, are you surprised by the scope of what we're expecting to see in Georgia, at least a dozen indictments, a dozen people indicted? You know, I'm not entirely surprised by that, Jake, given the length of time that there's been an investigation ongoing in Fulton County. Uh, We've seen Fonnie Willis and her team investigating over the course of many months. There was a lot of um, court filings around, for example, uh, immunity deals being given to specific uh, fake electors and so on. So, uh, I, I think she's been building a case for quite some time. Uh, and really just uh, from my perspective, I'm sure there's there's an indictment fatigue in the Trump defense team at this point trying to deal with uh, now it looks like potentially a fourth indictment at the same time. That's very challenging situation for any defense. And, and Sarah, Twitter was fined $350,000 because it delayed turning over the records to Jack Smith's team. What do you make of that back and forth? Yeah, it's interesting because, as we know, Elon Musk has said he would vote for a Republican president. He seems to have sided with Republicans in some cases, although he has also you know, brought Democrats onto the platform to do Twitter spaces, et cetera. And so you can imagine that he might feel uncomfortable bringing Twitter into an investigation against the former president. The one thing I want to note about that, though, is this is a very serious request for personal data of an account. It's very different when a government is trying to request that you take down a post or you hide or limit a post's uh, uh, accountability to 
author a post, asking for the actual data, private user data of a direct message, uh, of drafts, et cetera. That's a very different type of request. And you can imagine why Elon Musk and the Twitter team would kind of proceed with caution there because, you know, being a part of that, one could, you know, potentially worry might politicize the platform even further. And and Renato, uh, Trump seems to be claiming that this search warrant violated his First Amendment rights. Um, Is there a legitimate legal argument there? Even if you don't agree with it, is is there a legitimate argument? No, there's no legitimate argument. Uh, Search warrants can be executed. Uh, In fact, that's what we expect uh, law enforcement to do. We expect them to go to a judge uh, and to obtain a search warrant if there are records uh, to be seized. That's what government and prosecutors should be doing. And so this wasn't a request, uh, just to be clear. I want to clarify that from a moment ago. This was a lawful order. Uh, And I will just say, Jake, as somebody who represents many uh, large companies, it is very unusual for a company to expend resources and hire lawyers to try to fight an order, uh, you know, um, preventing disclosure of of materials um, that are being produced in a lawful uh, as a result of a lawful search warrant. Very unusual uh, for a company to do that. Renato, Sarah, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Is there a disconnect between what the numbers show and how Americans feel about the economy. Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren will join me live next to discuss that and some other issues. We're back with our money lead. While President Biden is out west touting his economic and climate plans, the White House and Wall Street are bracing for a highly anticipated inflation report due tomorrow. That data could decide whether or not the Federal Reserve hikes interest rates yet again, meaning you would pay more for credit card bills, mortgages, car loans, and on and on. Joining us now to discuss, Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. Uh, Senator Warren, I have so many questions for you about the economy, but I do want to ask you about these new developments out of Georgia. We are expecting Donald Trump to face his fourth indictment next week. He is expecting that as well. And yet, in most 2024 polls, he's tied with Joe Biden, or it's at least within the margin of error. Why? Well, look, I, I'm not a great political pundit here, but Donald Trump is going to do what Donald Trump does. And there are people who think, you know, that they're going to cheer him on over the indictments and everything else. But at the end of the day, Joe Biden is the leader our nation needs. And he's delivering. He's delivering on the economy. He's delivering internationally. Um, and he makes America a stronger, safer place. And I think come November 2024, there were 7 million more people who believed that Joe Biden would be the right leader. And I think it's going to be even uh, back in 2020. I think it's going to be even bigger than that in 2024. So there are good economic numbers. But in addition to those good economic numbers, Mm -hmm. gas prices sharply climbed in the recent weeks. Americans' credit card debt just hit a record $1 trillion, which I'm sure you're concerned about. More people are now tapping into their Mm -hmm. retirement accounts because of financial struggles. These are clear signs that at least some of the Democrats' economic plans are are not working, don't you think? I see it as whose side are you on in this fight. So, for example, what the president's gotten done is he's gotten his $35 uh, insulin for uh, seniors. We're about to watch in 2024 click into a cap on how much seniors pay on prescription drugs. President's been out there fighting to get rid of junk fees, and there are a lot of them that have fallen away. 
Uh, the most recent one that I've been talking about uh, is that we need to make sure that we've got enough money to keep kids in child care. There are a lot of economic issues that are ones that touch people right where they live. And they recognize, you know, they got to be able to hold it together until the end of the month. President Biden makes it clear he's out there fighting for those people every single day. He's out there fighting to keep those costs low. The Republicans are fighting the president every inch of the way. Mm -hmm. And I think when when the economics get ground into the politics, people are going to pay a lot more attention to the question of Republicans who just want tax cuts for billionaires. They want to help out giant corporations. They're all for monopolists. And President Biden, who's doing his best every day to lower costs for hardworking American families. Let's, you That's talk, what it's all about. You talked about child care. And, and let's talk about um, that because you and Democratic Senator Tina Smith of Minnesota have a, a CNN op-ed uh, today titled America's Child Care mm-hmm. Crisis is About to Get a Lot Worse. You say because pandemic funding for child care centers is set to expire next month, it's about to get worse. So what exactly is going to happen if Congress doesn't do anything and the program ends? So if our support for child care, our nationwide support goes away, about 3.2 million children are going to lose their child care spots. There are going to be child care centers across this country that just close. And that's going to have a terrible economic consequence because that's a lot of mamas and daddies who can't go to work, who can't work a full shift because they can't get adequate child care. So we are urging, Tina Smith and I and others, to say as the president is talking about emergency funding, emergency funding for Ukraine, emergency funding for uh, the various uh, uh, problems that we've seen so far. The key one that we should also be focused on in our economy is childcare. We need to make sure that childcare doesn't just fall over a cliff and we need to put in the kind of federal resources to support that. That's what we need to do in the short term. But I just want to say, Jake, long term, America needs to make an investment in childcare. This is early childhood education. This is investing in our children. You know where America stands among the 37 richest nations in the world? We're number 33. Think about that. Mexico spends more per child on their children than we do in the United States. Romania spends more on their children than we do in the United States. We want to build a strong future. We need to invest in child care. We want parents to work. We need to invest in child care. I confess I find it fascinating and distressing uh, how ignored children are in general by Congress when it comes to funding childhood cancer uh, studies, when it comes to uh, child nutrition, when it comes to daycare, all and on and on. And I don't quite understand why it, it Honestly, I know Democrats are are more in favor of social program spending than Republicans in general. But this problem doesn't go away when Democrats control all three branches. It it consistently uh, goes on. And as you noted in your op-ed, the United States is 33rd out of 37 and spends 13 billion on child care compared to 712 billion on defense. Why? Yep. You know, I. 
I think it's because children just don't have a voice. They don't vote. They don't have political action committees. They don't have lobbyists. And yet, investing in our children is how we build a future. You know, we, we understood this once as a nation. We started investing in public schools, and we started at kindergarten because we believed back then that kids zero to five weren't learning anything. But we made that investment in public schools because we believe that's how America will build a future. We'll have a better educated workforce. We'll have more people who will be more creative, who will invent more things. What we've now learned is those babies, zero to five, they are learning. And they need to be in places with lots of well-trained teachers and bright colors and big words and playing with each other so they're ready for school. We have learned that every dollar we spend on a child in those preschool years saves us $7 later on that we don't have to spend because children are struggling in school or having trouble when they're out of school. Those are investments we need to make long-term. Investing in our children is investing in our future. And by golly, it's time for us to stand up and say so. I want to ask you, uh, this is not the kind of child uh, you want to talk about, but the adult child, the adult son of, of President Biden, Hunter Biden, Republicans on the House Oversight Committee um, say that they have identified more than $20 million in payments from foreign sources to the Biden family, including Hunter Biden and their business associates. So far, we haven't seen any direct evidence pointing to Joe Biden, President Biden, doing anything illegal. Uh, and I don't necessarily uh, know what's everything that's in this. But I do wonder on, on, on a broader level, the 30,000 uh, foot view of this, uh, people close to Donald, I mean, people close to Joe Biden or people close to Donald Trump, but I'm talking about Joe Biden, making tens of millions of dollars because of their closeness to him. That can't be something that you like. That can't be something that you're comfortable with um, as a phenomenon. Look, I, I always worry about the influence peddlers in Washington, regardless of party affiliation. One of the things, as you know, I've spent a lot of my time in Congress working on is how we bring just more ethics and more oversight in general to uh, everything that we do in government. Look at, we've got a United States Supreme Court where people take gifts and don't even report them even though the law requires them to report. And that they somehow think that that is all right. It is not all right, but we don't have a set of ethics that apply to the Supreme Court. We have a problem with the revolving door. People who come into government and um, uh, from industry, and then they write regulations for the people they used to work with, and then they leave government and go back to working for that same industry and cashing in on their time in government service, selling off their access to our elected officials. I understand that it is hard for Republicans and Democrats and independents to say, we've got to have a set of ethics that apply to everyone. And that means we've got to be willing to say to our friends and people who are not our friends, the same rules apply across the board. And we got to shut down the revolving door. We got to have ethics rules that apply to everyone. That's what we got to do both to make government function better, but also 
so the American people can have confidence in their government. I think, I think that is really a crucial challenge for us in the next few years. I agree, and I think when people see Hunter Biden being paid thousands of dollars from Kazakhstan or Ukraine's energy companies, they understandably get skeptical uh, about how this town operates. Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. A deadly FBI raid in Utah just hours before President Biden arrives in the state. Why they tried to arrest the man before the president's visit. Stay with us. FBI agents shot and killed a man in Utah while trying to serve him an arrest warrant after he allegedly posted threats online against President Biden ahead of Biden's trip to the state. Let's bring in CNN's Josh Campbell. Josh, investigators noted in their criminal complaint that the suspect, Craig Robertson, appeared to own a sniper rifle and several other firearms. Tell us what happened this morning. Yeah, Jake, so the shooting occurred in Provo, Utah, early this morning as agents were trying to take this man into custody. He was under investigation for allegedly threatening a protectee of the U.S. Secret Service. We're now learning that was President Joe Biden. I'll read you part of a disturbing post the suspect allegedly wrote. He wrote, I hear Biden is coming to Utah, digging out my old ghillie suit. That's a reference to a tire, a camouflage attire worn by snipers, and cleaning the dust off the M24 sniper rifle. Now, Biden is indeed expected to be in Utah this afternoon. Of course, that uh, type of post, very concerning for federal law enforcement. This investigation actually began back in March when a social media company uh, saw a concerning post online regarding Alvin Bragg, the district attorney in New York. They contacted the FBI. That's when this investigation got started. One of those posts, uh, the suspect allegedly wrote, heading to New York to fulfill my dream of eradicating another George Soros two-bit political hack DA. I'll be waiting in the courthouse parking garage with my suppressed Smith & Wesson 9mm to smoke a radical fool prosecutor that should never have been elected. Now, he goes on in graphic detail to talk about killing Bragg. We're not going to bring you those vile details. It's interesting, Jake, the FBI uh, uh, at one point had approached this suspect. Uh, He was under surveillance. They described him as wearing a dark suit. He had a Donald Trump hat on. He had a lapel pin of an AR-15. They confronted him about these concerning posts, and the suspect allegedly told them that, look, this was all a dream. He told FBI agents, you come back when you have a warrant. That they did this morning, showing up at 6.15 a.m., the shooting occurred, that suspect now dead. The circumstances of that FBI shooting very much under investigation at this hour, Jay. All right, Josh Campbell, thanks so much. Coming up next, the controversial law that just cost an East African country some major financial aid. Stay with us. In our world lead, Uganda's harsh new law criminalizing homosexuality is provoking more than just worldwide condemnation and backlash. The World Bank just announced that it is suspending new loans to Uganda. CNN's Larry Madowo joins us now from Nairobi, Kenya. Uh, First of all, uh, tell us about Uganda's anti-gay law. What, What exactly does it say and when exactly was it enacted? Jake, this law passed in May, very popular across the country with religious and political groups. And the White House has described it as one of the most extreme anti-LGBT plus laws in the world. This is why. The three main penalties here. Just with the offense of promoting homosexuality, that gets you 20 years if convicted. The act of homosexuality, so same-sex acts, that takes you to jail for life. And... For the offense of aggravated homosexuality, that gives you the death penalty. That's why it's getting so much criticism. So 
this, like I mentioned, is very popular in the country. Listen to the MP, the lawmaker that brought this to Parliament, reacting to this pause by the World Bank. Unless they want to tell us that each time we want to make a law, we should first consult America or World Bank and IMF. Please, we are consulting you. Will this law be acceptable to you? Then if they say it is acceptable, we bring it back to Parliament and debate it. So, Jake, you can see the rhetoric there that conflates the U.S. and the World Bank in this decision. Will the World Bank's action change any minds among Uganda's leadership? Is it not possible that it might just make other problems in Uganda worse? I'll take the second question first. It's possible. The World Bank says its commitments to Uganda were about $5.2 billion by July 18th last month. So President Museveni just responded to this in a handwritten letter that he posted to his Twitter, or X now. I want to read a section of this for you. I want to inform everybody, starting with Ugandans, that Uganda will develop with or without loans. It is therefore unfortunate that the World Bank and other actors dare to want to coerce us into abandoning our faith culture, principles, and sovereignty using money. They really underestimate all Africans. And that word sovereignty is what you've heard a lot every time Uganda has been criticized of this law. But I've been in Uganda twice, Jake, this year, reporting before the law passed and after the law passed. And I met people who've had to go into hiding who say they were fired or um, evicted or even suffered assault because of this. Yeah, the law's horrific, of course. Uh, Larry Madoo in Kenya, thank you so much. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, X, formerly known as Twitter, Blue Sky, if you have, have an invite, the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show with the lead scene. And our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the situation. See you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.